Hello and welcome back to the other 99% podcast where we take a step back from the 1% gains that society has become obsessed with and instead talk about the other 99%. Throughout this series we will discuss everything from nutrition to sleep, training methods, work-life balance, leadership and mental health. Nice. Hi, hi George. Hi Tom. How are you? <laughs> yeah good mate, good. I'm excited. Today's a, today's a good one isn't it? It's, it's a really interesting topic, isn't it? And I, f- I feel like we've just scratched the surface of it with the research that we've done for this one. But yeah, it should be a really good intro to the topic. And um, yeah, I, I found it really interesting myself. Yeah. And we had second Christmas today, didn't we? Second Christmas? Yeah, we've got new microphones. Oh, uh, yeah. I had no idea what you were talking about then. <laughs> yeah, so hopefully listeners, our audio should sound a lot better. If not, we've messed up the setting somehow, but... If it hasn't improved this podcast, it will improve for the next one. We're working on it. Yeah. Yeah. How's your week been? Yeah, it's been all right. Just quickly, when we got these, do you know what it reminded me of? What? Have you seen that photo of like the skinny um, teenager in the gym and he's got a bicep vein and he's, he says, you could say things are getting pretty serious because he's got a bicep <laughs> vein. <laughs> I was going to say the same about our podcast. You could say things are getting pretty serious yeah. now. We've up-leveled or levelled up. Yeah. Um, how's my week? Yeah, my week's been good. Obviously, it was the first week back after the Christmas break, like most people. Um, for me, obviously, I had that eye surgery and ended up with about three weeks off of work. So I was actually really looking forward to getting back into a routine and coming back into work. And yeah, it's been a good, good first week back. Yeah, nice. Um, obviously, we created, well, you created that little whoop team, didn't you? So if anyone wants to join us in that, um, yeah. give us a shout. But it's been interesting to see your recoveries on whoop since you've gone back to work have absolutely plummeted. Yeah, yeah, it's not been great. I think I've averaged about 30%, haven't I? <laughs> yeah, it's not been pretty. Um, yeah. Do you know what's funny as well? I had quite a high strain today and it said this favours overreaching or overtraining and obviously there's no such thing as overtraining it's just under recovery which I'm also nailing so yeah training <laughs> well lots of training very little recovery yeah. going against all the things we talk about on here and I'm also in a massive calorie deficit so there we go losing weight are we yeah I'm down to 93.5 kilograms which is yeah decent mm. I'm um, also is- in a calorie deficit yeah yeah uh i'm not 93.5 kilograms but i'm in a deficit <laughs> you're back to running there you've had some good runs haven't you yeah um and actually it links in i'm going to talk about it a little bit more um in this episode how i sort of found the confidence to get back into running again yeah. um but yeah went for a little one today and and oh, you know i'm not about to win the london marathon but you know it's quite nice to to just get out and i think this is probably the first run that i've enjoyed today okay and how, how's the rest uh, of your week been yeah good good obviously back to work as well like you um so it's been quite full-on you know i hadn't seen before six o'clock in the morning for a couple of weeks yeah. uh so that was um oh, i was gonna say refreshing but it wasn't uh, <laughs> it was... <laughs> i actually i refuse to get up any earlier than six that's my limit I get up at six each day at the moment and I'm if I get up any other than that, I'm definitely not recovering. Yeah, it's just uh obviously to get off site and then get back 
back to working times. So we have quite an early start, so yeah. I need to to be away on time. But I I kind of figure, and I think this applies to a lot of different people, especially at this time of year when you know it's dark and it's wet and it's crappy, that I'm going to be tired whether I wake up at 5:30 or 7. So at least if I wake up at 5:30, I'm tired, but I've accomplished something. Yeah. So that's the mentality that's that's put me through this first week, really. Also, as I've got a bit older, I feel like I'm less bothered about having to feel not tired at work. Yeah, like, I... In my, in my earlier coaching days, I was like, I need to be fresh and be at my very best every single day. And then <laughs> as you get a bit older, you're like, ah, it's just another day. <laughs> Is that just you? <laughs> like no, I think you just... I think when I was first at it, I probably wasn't good enough to do my job while I was tired. Yeah. Everything while I was at work took so much effort to do. If you went in tired, like you were just screwed. Whereas that's, probably the, that's a good point. It's probably the same for me. Yeah. Whereas now all those things that used to take up a lot of effort don't, you know, they just become so much more autonomic. It's like training, isn't it? The things that used to stress you out when you would first go into the gym what you're going to do, you know, how do you do the exercise? All of that is just so automatic now that you don't need to think about it. Yeah. It's an excellent point. Oh, thanks very much. <laughs> so, you, yeah, yeah, and you, your recovery has actually been pretty good on Weep, hasn't it? You've been, you had like a 90% one day. Yeah, which I'm, I'll be honest, I'm slightly confused by because I have had so much less sleep than I was getting while we were on Christmas break. So, um, I don't know, you know, I gave up eating meat. Uh, that's been happening now for about seven or eight weeks. So I don't know if that's maybe got something to do with better recovery, feeling a bit less sluggish. Um, and as a result of that, I've paid a lot more attention to food. So trying to keep it a bit more varied. And I've had, yeah, just some like really interesting meals recently because I've been conscious of not just putting like a piece of meat and some carbs and some veg on a plate so mm. i think i'm probably healthier than i have been in the past as well nice and feeling better for yeah. it or similar yeah i think so um you know less bloated less heavy i feel like i you know if anyone said at any point do you want to go to the gym or do you want to go for a run or something like i don't feel ever kind of like bloated you know after like a big meal or whatever where you've had lots of red meat or something you can feel quite sluggish i just don't feel sluggish anymore yeah on the on the topic on the topic of nutrition have, do you listen to the diary of a ceo do you know what i've actually just been sent uh, a link to one of those about um exercise and weight loss yeah well he had tim specter i think his name was on the show this week yeah. and i've actually got his book and i think i've read about half of it but he has some quite controversial stuff in there about um exercise not helping weight loss which I'm sure we've both got the same viewpoint on I completely dis disagree with because I understand the research on people exercise and then they think they've burnt off more calories than they actually have and they end up eating more than they would otherwise. So the net difference is they end up gaining weight. But and we've spoken about goal setting and you, you set your goals based on the identity of the person you want to be or the person you want to become. And I feel like if you go in with that mindset, it's just a completely different um like a different approach to it yeah and i totally agree but also when you look at weight loss and i think this is such a topical thing we can talk about it you know till the cows come home but 
if you're looking at calories in versus calories out, and, and that is how we determine whether somebody's weight is going to go up, stay the same or go down. I don't understand how you can think that exercise won't help you lose weight because you've increased the calories that you've burned. So yeah. it must have an impact. It can't have no impact. Yeah, you know, yeah. it, it must do something. Um, you know, particularly when we look at, uh, you know, developing muscle mass and increasing metabolic rate, or even as we get older and losing muscle mass, the aging population, metabolic rate slows as a result of that. So, yeah, I haven't listened to it yet or read it, so I don't want to argue with it too much. Um, and I'm actually finishing a book at the moment on bias. So I think for me, when I listen to this, because I will, I need to come at it just completely impartial. Yeah, yeah. It's a hard thing to do that. Um, I've listened to it either. I just heard a couple of like the clips from um, Stephen Bartlett's Instagram. Yeah, so I'll tell you what, I'll give it a go maybe this evening or tomorrow. So, And then we can we can talk about it on next week's podcast yeah sounds good but t today the topic of this one is the biopsychosocial model yeah how many times are we going to say that wrong today <laughs> i think we call it bps from now on yeah I'm, just, I'm going to abbreviate from there on yeah <laughs> the, the, the the bps model is exactly what it says it is really instead of looking at someone as just a biological organism you you take into account the whole person and this model is mainly applied in the rehab setting. So when someone's rehabbing from an injury that they've they've had, and obviously the psycho refers to psychology, which is you know everyone's body is connected to their brain, so you need to take that into account. And then the other important third part of that is social, so the environment and the people they're around and the language that people use and all all of that kind of stuff. So taking into account all of that when you approach your rehabilitation. Yeah. Um, we, we listened to a, a couple of different podcasts that were talking very specifically about this and we came away with like, really different perspectives, didn't we? So do you want to start with, with what you came up with? Yes, yeah, so the, the main things that I picked out, a couple of things. Firstly, pain is really, really complicated and um, there's some different pain models which they didn't really get into, but that might be interesting for some future episodes. But it's, it's not straightforward in terms of you've got this damage to your body and then this is a pain response. And some of the stuff that we were speaking about just before we started recording was there's been a load of studies where they'll scan a body part and people that are in pain have no structural defects. And then there's people that are in pain. Sorry, mate, I've got that wrong around. There's people in pain with no structural defects and people with structural defects without any pain. So it's not straightforward. And that's why you can't just treat someone as this biological organism you have to take into account the psychology and the social factors as well because pain is pain is really really complicated and then the the take home for that in terms of practical application is the language you use and the way you think about it is really really important because that's going to drive your beliefs and your behavior which can lead to very different outcomes so that was the key take home for me I think the um, it's essentially an episode about pain, this isn't it? And like pain treatment, pain management and like pain discussion. Yeah. Um, I actually, I think that pain is profitable. And it sort of occurred to me when I was looking at this, because um, when we spoke about, you know, supplements and weight loss supplements, you know, it, it's 
beneficial for companies to make us feel like we need what they're selling. So yeah. La, in 2021, so it's actually two years ago now, there were £700 million spent by the UK public on painkillers. Like That's absolutely insane for a figure. Yeah. And I think... I mean, this is, you know, that figure's out there. Well, it I'd got to a we, point where the NHS made people pay for their own pain medication, didn't they? Because they were yeah. having to give out so much of it. But we, um, you know, you, you and I spend a lot of time talking about researching and being in this industry. And I'll be honest, I'm quite new to the BPS model. It hasn't, you know, for someone who's had a lot of injuries, nobody has ever, you know, told me that they're going to try and treat me using this approach. And yeah. that's a lot of practitioners to see who haven't consciously made the effort to say that. And I find that really unusual. Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder whether that's just part of the, um, like maybe they've intentionally not brought that up because like, say someone comes in, they just want to get out of pain. They're not going to care about the theory of the BPS um, model and understanding all of the detail behind it. And I think the other thing is, challenging people's belief systems is really really hard so i think there's always like a natural tendency to maybe stay clear of it let's say someone's got really bad lower back pain and they come in and they're convinced that their back pain is caused by sitting in a chair all day like tackling those belief systems is a is um probably quite an uncomfortable conversation yeah i mean <clears throat> I, I might have done a couple of people a bit of a an injustice there because whilst i say that no one's actually spoken to me about you know the bps model specifically I have seen two people in the past where I have looked forward to going there because I know that I don't just walk out physically feeling better, but actually they they offer, you know, it's a good chat and it, it's kind of a nice place to go as well. Yeah. And I think that, that covers some of what we're looking at here, doesn't it? Yeah. But also I've, I think like practitioners I've worked with, the the really, really good ones they don't you walk out there feeling more confident than you did going in and i think that's a big part of this theory like you mentioned with um people profiting if they put all of this fear into you like oh you've damaged this part of your body you've got inactive glutes you've got a weak core you've got all of this language builds up a picture in their head and they're like god there's something really really wrong with me but actually like the physios or chiros or whoever you see um you'll walk out of there not thinking like that like you you walk out of there feeling like my body is strong and adaptable and it's going to get better over time and i, I like I've, that and yeah go on yeah the, the good ones put the locus of control back into you don't they so you know if you have got an issue with um i don't know your achilles or inactive glutes or whatever that it, you don't walk away having been told a bunch of things you can't do they say all right yeah. we're just going to put a pin in those for now but actually here's a load of stuff you can do uh, and you walk away with a really proactive, positive approach to it. Yeah. And one of my favourite um, quotes ever is from Brett Contreras. There was this massive thing, obviously he's known as the glute guy, and there was this massive thing in the PT industry about, um, you know, the whole like anterior pelvic tilt, core getting long and weak, glutes not doing what they should do. And this went round in like... Um, physical therapy and physios and everyone like grabbed hold of it and he was talking about this in his book and he, he described his job as being able to help strengthen people's bodies minds and spirits to instill confidence and improve self-esteem 
and that that kind of encompasses this approach for me because if you can do that then people are gonna have much more positive outcomes than they would otherwise because that quote actually doesn't just apply to a rehab setting does it that can be any trainer or coach yeah that could just apply to coaching yeah yeah so <clears throat> i actually looked up a a definition of the the biopsychosocial approach yeah um and it said it describes pain and disability as a multi-dimensional dynamic interaction between the psychological physiological and social factors that reciprocally influence one another resulting in chronic and complex pain syndromes so i've got this this picture and what i'll try and do is cut this image in at this point um but you've got a triangle uh, and on the three points of the triangle you've got the the biology the physiology at the top um the environment or the social and, and then the psychology and then in the middle of the triangle is um the symptom or the dynamic risk factor mm -hmm. so it's putting that like in the middle of those three things but it's actually putting the the person in the middle of those three things so the the model or the the approach was first proposed by um this chap called george engel and i listened to the podcast uh, over the week that was coming from a very clinical perspective and i'll be honest um I thought they dodged a lot of the questions that they were being asked. I don't think they yeah. wanted to put themselves out there too much. Yeah. Um, but what what they did sort of come away with was that studying the BPS takes us away from traditional clinical methods. You know, someone comes in, uh, they're tight here, they're weak here. Uh, if we loosen that and strengthen that, that's what we can, you know, we're just looking at them like a machine almost, but, you know, making it a more um, person-centered approach. So, the BPS exists and it has these three sort of multi-dimensional elements to it, but the the practical implication for the the you know the rehab specialist or the coach is that they are no longer looking at the person as just an object, they're looking at them as a person. Yeah. And the the, the podcast I listen to also um spoke about that from a practitioner's standpoint where it almost makes their job more challenging because they can't just look at them as a as physiology or biology they have to take into account all of that so that that was kind of the um one of the reasons they suggested it's not widely adopted as a model yeah the other thing they were talking about was you know how can we prove this how can we because we're talking about something in a very scientific world in, in a clinical yeah. world in a clinical setting where if something's going to be adopted by the masses you need you know hundreds maybe even thousands of studies and examples that say this works and i actually think that's quite difficult because you know you could never find two acl tears that are exactly the same you could never find two chronic back pains they're exactly the same and yet yeah. you would be asked to apply two different approaches to these people and see which one worked the best but i don't think that's possible these clinicians didn't think it was possible and therefore it's quite difficult to prove the efficacy of this yeah see i i think the proof lies in all of the um all of the research just on the complexity of pain and then you, you almost can't ignore those other factors because when like take those sham surgeries where they pretended to operate on some people like made incisions but didn't actually do anything and those people get better like how else do you explain that without using a model like this i mean the sham surgery is essentially a placebo right yeah it's yeah. like giving a sugar pill instead of medicine and then getting better but we spoke about that and i, I hate to use the nasty c word but covid um yeah. 
it was to do with um, vaccination reactions, wasn't it? And people were told that they were going to have responses to certain vaccinations, and they actually yeah. physically yeah, yeah. Uh, manifested these symptoms or believed that they had these symptoms just because they were told you're you know you're going to feel this way and it's absolutely incredible the power that our mind has over us and if we let it run amok then it, like serious problems yeah and that's why like, when you see people like if you're in pain it just takes all of your attention and all you want to do is get out of pain like it just grips you doesn't it and you just yeah, like the, the stuff you do to try and get rid of pain is yeah different level i've actually found the wim hof um the breathing techniques really helpful for pain um you know i have i would say i've suffered from chronic pain in the past and long-term injuries as well and since uh starting this this meditative process i haven't had a single painkiller really yeah and i have no idea if it's just because the books i read and the research says that if i do these yeah. techniques then I'm going to feel better and be in less pain or whether it's actually worked but either way the net result is I feel better yeah it's interesting that meditation I think I'm on day 30 now of the Sam Harris app and there's probably been five or six meditations where you're just noticing sensations and he's he, he gets you to try and remove any emotion with it so you're just feeling it and it's not good or bad whether it is pain or whether it's a different sensation um so yeah, it's, it's interesting. I wonder if I'll end up in a similar place to yourself. Have you done 30 days consecutive? Yeah, yeah. So my target for January was to meditate every single day. Um, and I've already cocked that up. So um, I, missed, <laughs> I missed a day over the weekend, unfortunately. Um, so I've done a couple of longer, longer ones to try and uh, catch up. But um that was it got me thinking about our episode last weekend about uh new year's goals yeah. and it's like saying um you know when people are like, oh i failed you know i missed a day so i'm just gonna like miss every day now or yeah, yeah. you know i had a, i had a, i had a chocolate bar at lunch so i'm gonna have three big macs at dinner because pff, whatever yeah. it's like getting a tiny crack on your phone screen and being like well i'm gonna run over right. my phone now yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> so just thinking about those things has kept me very much on task and, and planning to keep that going you know if you're aiming to do every day and you only miss three days well that's better than what i was doing where i was you know yeah. every other day at bed. Um, so his actual wake there. his app's called waking up and he used to have a streak on it so you could see how many days in a row people had logged on and he actually got rid of it because he was just like, people got a bit addicted to it yeah, and it was like that's not the point of it. Like people, the whole point of meditation is to try and think less. Be like, oh, yeah. I have to like make this meditation. I was it ruin my streak and like just adds that level of stress to it. Yeah, for sure. And, and the this is where I think we're sort of segueing nicely into the psychological elements of pain. Um, and there's a term for this. It's called psychogenic pain. So pain can make you feel worse mentally. We said that you know when you're in pain, you can't think of anything accept the fact you're in pain and oh my god i don't want to be in pain anymore but actually your mind is capable of causing pain without a physical source like you said about the shoulders yeah. um but it can also make pre-existing pain increase or linger and the the phenomenon has been given this term psychogenic pain um so it's when we've got like underlying uh, emotional or psychological or even behavioral like factors that are impacting the pain that we're feeling 
Okay, interesting. Um, yeah, and there was some research as well into how this well, can manifest with like heart attacks and things like that. Oh, um, really? Yeah. Well, if we if we think well, like about you're it, you're at increased risk of heart attack <clears> if you experience <throat> psychogenic pain. Yes. Yeah. I, I was just trying to get clear well, on it because so, the terminology is a bit confusing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty. Do you remember when I was getting those headaches? I think they diagnosed. Oh no, that was cervicogenic. Not what is it? It's, say the pain word again. Psychogenic. Yeah. Psychogenic. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it's not that they're at more risk um, because they have psychogenic pain. A risk factor of these underlying emotional problems is an increase in heart attack rate or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. With you. Yeah, but then that's not really surprising, is it, when we look at, like, stress and hormonal responses to that. If we're in a difficult place emotionally, then probably are we're going to be stressed. And then that there's yeah, a lot yeah. of research in stress and, and CHD and stuff like that. So I don't think that's a, a particular surprise. But, yeah, it's just correlation, not causation. Yeah, but what I liked... Um, what I liked about this is the fact that it's it's got a definition, it's got a term, and I think it brings it out into the open because... I think people make or can do make things worse for themselves with this where you know you go and see a physio you go and see a doctor and they're like yeah you're in pain but you know you are actually fine there's nothing structurally wrong with you you're actually okay now that can go two ways I think um the negative way of that is oh you know what's wrong with me like my my head's the thing causing the pain I've I've got problems etc etc and I have I have seen that in real life settings where people have, you know, thought that way as a result of it. Just because your pain is caused psychologically doesn't mean it's not real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, and that's what this model is doing. It's acknowledging the fact that all pain is pain and it offers yeah. a different way of looking at it and therefore a different way of treating it. Yeah, I, I find it's very easy to dismiss other people's pain. It's like, oh, I'll just get on with it. But then when you're in pain yourself, it's a completely different story. <laughs> yeah um especially if there's like a i don't know a scenario where they're trying to get out of something or something like that yeah yeah but then um yeah it's like learning to listen with a bit of empathy is is good in that scenario yeah for sure and like we were talking about it um before we came on or actually it was the other day um you know it gave me the confidence to, to go running again was because my physio said to me do you know what actually there is a bit of this, but you're really not going to make it much worse. You know, your foot's not about to fall off yeah. because of this issue. So, you know, do your rehab. Don't don't be an idiot and try and run a marathon tomorrow. But actually, you are okay to go and do those things. And honestly, I walked out having not run in six weeks and went for a run the next day. I literally just needed to be told that I wasn't yeah. going to, you know, cause long-term damage. And all of a sudden, the confidence was back. Yeah, yeah. I've had a couple of examples like that. I had over lockdown, I had Achilles tendinopathy from doing a load of running. But by that point, I'd worked in a sport where we had a lot of that and I'd rehab quite a lot of it. So I kind of I kind of knew I wasn't going to do um, any real damage there. It was just a case of like managing your running um, running distance a bit. And then that is it's as much as you can tolerate in terms of pain, really. Um, and obviously, you can do a load of stuff like isometric holds to try and inhibit pain. <coughs> And then the other one was that knee pain I had for ages, which I've, I've, I think I finally diagnosed as something called snapping Pez syndrome, which is basically where your adductor tendon just like rubs over the bursa on your knee and it makes this like snapping. But the physio I saw, he was like, just, yeah, you're not going to do any damage. Like it's, it's not causing any structural damage. So it's just, 
like as much as you want to tolerate again. And like you said, it does give you the confidence to go, do you know what? I'm just going to crack on and um, like understanding that you're not doing any real damage is a, is a really positive thing. I'm sure there are examples where you might actually be doing some sort of damage, <laughs> but you know, I'm not a doctor. But uh, having that confidence to go out, is, um, it does make a big difference to the outcome. Yeah, we probably don't want to encourage people to spend time. Um, like if you've been told that you've like torn a ligament uh, or broken your arm, like please don't think that this is yeah. a green light to just go and crack on. And if you tell your head it's okay, yeah. then it'll be fine. Um, and we might get a few complaints from that. But yeah, it's such an interesting like field of research, I think. Yeah, but it, like it, even then, like say um, we we spoke about pain and structural damage not being correlated, but like at the end of the day, muscle tear is a muscle tear. So if you have got a muscle tear, it's still going to get better, and you can still just frame it in a positive way. If you understand the different stages of healing, okay, say I've got a, a grade one muscle tear, we're looking at like ten to twelve days. So obviously you're not going to be stupid and do too much early on because you need to let it heal. But then you can still frame it in a positive way that I am going to get better. I just need to allow this time and I need to do these things and it's going to get better. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when we uh, when we talk about uh, the recovery process, having the right people around you, that that social element now is important as well. So the the terminology kind of changes doesn't it you know people that say i'm injured versus i'm recovering yeah but i think that's that's a really big um or has a really big impact on us because it changes our internal dialogue about how we view the injury as well like i am broken in some way i'm, I'm not working properly because i'm in pain or you know, I'm actually, I'm recovering and we view it as a, a positive step forwards that we're in control of as opposed to something that's happened to us. Yeah, for sure. And I, I suppose the, the last thing that I thought about when I was doing this research was, um, I always forget this quote, it's like strong opinions loosely held. So for that, okay. point, but like what I mean is there's a really interesting thought experiment. I don't know if we've spoken about this before, but if you think about what people thought was true 500 years ago, which seems ridiculous now. So a really obvious one is people thought the earth was flat. And now it seems ridiculous to think that the earth is anything but not flat. Um, and then you can do the same thing with yourself. If you think about what you thought was true 20 years ago, seems ridiculous today. And it's the same with this. It's just about challenging your own belief system. So if you're experiencing this pain and you're dead set on like what the cause is and there is something structurally wrong with you, um that might not be the case so you can have those opinions but if the evidence is produced to prove it not true don't hang on to it so you might yeah. be getting a load of shoulder pain and they scan it and then you realize there's nothing that actually shows on that scan so it's related to these other factors but if you're so um like blinkered by thinking that something else is a cause of your pain when it might not be and it's always going to be more than one factor so that that's what i meant by strong opinions loosely held yeah and that that just translates so strongly across like all walks of life doesn't it you know whether the quote whether you think you can or you can't you're right yeah you know as soon as you take that that blinkers off and we spoke about it from the when we did the review of the subtle art asking the question what if i'm wrong 
you know, yeah. what if there is a, a different perspective that might actually be better for everybody involved? Yeah. Uh, so that was, I think, from the, the clinical point of view, it's sort of like reinforcing exactly what you've just said. Um, like the approach that we have to stuff, it needs to change. Yeah, yeah. And we, we need to be prepared to go with that. But then, you know, it's really easy for us, isn't it, to sit here, uh, the people that we work with, we do have time. But if you're, you know, slightly topical, isn't it, working in the NHS, then you don't have the time necessarily to go through all the same steps that you might like to because you've got, you know, a waiting room full of people that all need help, etc. Yeah, the NHS is not only good. Do you know what I was reading the other day? Apparently, it's something like 30 four percent i think it was of hospital beds is occupied by people that are ready to be discharged but they can't get the care in place to send them home which should be organized by the local council oh my god yeah but anyway that's a bit of a tangent that is a massive tangent yeah (laughs) yeah we could upset lots of people by offering our views on that topic (laughs) (laughs) strong opinions loosely held until the data is produced otherwise that's 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 my current opinion on it. <laughs> that's it done. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I actually think that whilst this seems complex, it it doesn't necessarily need to be, does it? No. Like there's the the stuff that we we can do, and the we spoke about it with Paul, didn't we? When we had Paul on, he created his first app sort of realizing that people didn't engage with like, rehabilitation practice yeah, so yeah, yeah. i think what this also does is you know we're not saying for a second that the physiological element of of care and treatment and training is not important yeah but and, if you and I, I think that's, social, that's still gonna be people's primary focus as well i imagine yeah but if you include the social correctly and you've got the right people in place um you know or you you not saying you contact your patients in a social fashion but if there's more than just the the 30 minutes or the hour that you're in the room for you know where you have check-ins to see if they are still doing their rehab it it kind of increases that adherence as well doesn't it yeah do you know what just popped into my head have you seen that andy murray andy murray documentary yeah and you know he goes off to see this guy and oh no he comes here doesn't he bill something comes over from america is this the general physical preparedness guy? Um, can't remember like what, but it, 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 like understanding this model kind of makes sense, kind of with his approach now. I'm not saying that's what I would do, but <laughs> everyone treated Andy Murray like it was just biology, and he came over and tried to make training fun and got him doing like forward rolls and moving and doing all sorts of stuff. So like what he is doing there, he's working on the psychology and the social stuff because he's enjoying it um, instead of just focusing on the physiology. Like ideally you just do all three really well, but that, like understanding that model kind of gives you some kind of insight, like whether he knows that's what he's doing or not, probably he might do um but yeah that's that's just like i think that could be quite a good example for people who have seen that documentary i think that works um as well as like a feed forward mechanism so it's ross edgley's first book the world's fittest book um obviously don't want to go a single episode without mentioning his name <laughs> so um he looks into all these different training methods from around the world and the general physical preparedness basically takes play into training 
Uh, okay. Yeah, which is essentially what Annie Murray was doing. So yeah, when we're yeah. kids, like you look at the mobility of a toddler, they can squat, they can hinge, they can rotate, they can pick themselves up. Like, they're absolutely amazing. And by the time they're 30, you can literally do like none of those things without complaining about some sort of twinge or stiffness, yeah. can you? Yeah. The the thing with the thing is though with this is just squats in particular because like I'm a bit obsessed with squats as you know. When you look at toddlers, so people can't squat deep because they can't maintain their center of mass and their base of support. Toddlers have a massive head, which <laughs> which helps counterbalance. So yeah. you know when we've spoken about like if you do a goblet squat or hold some cat in front of you, it's easier to hit depth on a squat. That's essentially yeah. what babies are doing just with their massive head. <laughs> I love it and you can go into like hip joint um kind of biology as well can't you with that for how you can do movements but yeah. again that's why this model is really important because people's biology and their physiology isn't the same so when you put people through standardized tests some people on their very best day are still going to fail your standardized yeah. data that that is a really good example though because um people get told they can't squat deep because of their hip hip anatomy like 90 percent of the time probably 99 percent of the time i'd say they can squat deep they just don't know how to yeah and um like all the Stuart mcgill stuff on the dalmatian hip like people whose femur sits really deep in their acetabulum he described as sacrifice sacrificing stability for mobility but just putting that idea in someone's head they're gonna think oh if i hit 90 i'm that's all I'm ever going to be able to do. But it's probably not ever the case. Yeah, I like that. That's some good words in there as well, aren't there? Yeah, yeah. I, as I told you, I, I like reading about squats and hips, basically, yeah. <laughs> so you, do we like squats at the moment? Are they still still fashionable? Yeah, yeah. Still, still in there at the moment, yeah. Do you want to give everyone a little update on how you're getting on with your, um, your squat and run challenge? Yeah, well, I've actually... Do you know what? I'm I'm really proud of myself because I'm still meditating each day. I'm still running uh, as much as I said I would, and I'm still lifting as much as I said I, as I, said I would. So it's, it's going pretty well. Um, the plan is at the moment is I'm just going for a bit of a volume block, running and lifting. Um, and then, yeah, as it gets to the summer, I'll start to bring the distance down and up the intensity a bit. Yeah, lovely. I'm, I'm currently up to, I should hit 35k this week of running. Um my long runs up to 90 minutes and my two other sessions planned for this week are a VAT max session and a threshold session. So I'm going to stick with those three as like my main ones. And then when I get a Saturday off, I'll do like the odd park run. Yeah, and then nice. my, my lifting, I'm still squatting three times a week. Delightful. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So quite, yeah so... It is quite tough, but having that motivation and, and having that, that framework and the terminology as well i actually had this conversation with someone else recently who said i'm going to try and do this yeah and it links it's so like, well to what we've been talking about in this episode versus what yeah. we've been you know talking about with our own goals is i'm going to try versus i'm doing it's just yeah. such a big difference yeah like that person is not going to succeed at whatever they're talking about no unless they change the terminology 100 yeah because yeah. you're already giving yourself an excuse oh i gave it a go yeah <laughs> yeah and do you know what actually if that is you like don't don't you know hold yourself to too high standards to have a go at yourself it's like i said about the phone screen isn't it you know yeah. you miss a day don't don't smash the rest of your screen just just start again 
Yeah, or set yourself something more realistic if you're like most people don't have the time to do the amount of training that I do. So like setting their goal as running a five minute mile and squatting two twenty is probably not realistic. Yeah. But then also, you know, running the first five K could be. Yeah, exactly that, yeah. Um also the running community is so much more like friendly and sociable than the lifting community. Do you think? Yeah, like I've, well, I've only this is based off of two park runs and eleven years <laughs> lifting in <the> gym. <laughs> but you go and do a park run, and everyone's just like happy and like chatty and really supportive of each other. You go into a gym, it's like oh, how many sets have you got left? Get out of my way. It's so different. Yeah, but I feel like the environment there. So with a park run, no one's, you know, you might get little clusters of people that are racing each other, but actually no one's competing, are they? Whereas yeah. in a gym like there is someone in the way of what you want to do sometimes and that's irritating if you just want to jump on the machine or whatever it is yeah but i did it because i, I, think I'm uh, oh, I found swimming community versus running having been quite heavily involved in the cycling and the running yeah you can't really have a conversation with anyone without going oh what's your 5k time what's your ftp <laughs> In swimming, no one's ever asked me what my pace per hundred is, like what my fast. No one cares. They literally yeah. don't care. And also, definitely, it's more like that in running compared to cycling. From the cyclists that I've like known anyway, that it's a lot more about like, say, it's a Sunday and they just go out for a long ride. Like, no one really cares about pace or time or anything like that. But yeah, running definitely seems more geared towards um, like outcome measures. That's why I've loved trail running so much. And I think this is a, a really useful piece of advice um, for anyone who's looking to get into running as well. I think the fear of judgment is quite prevalent. And even if you're not being judged, you feel like you might be. Run on trails, because as soon as you run on a trail, the pace that you go at is just like the least relevant thing in the yeah. world because it's muddy, it's hilly, like there's a tree in the way, you've got to duck under something, jump over something else, and it slows you down. But it makes the workout, I think, more fun and interesting than just running on concrete. And also when someone looks at it, like they've got no idea what you were doing. And it takes all that pressure and all that stigma away, even if you were the one that put it there in the first place. Yeah, that's exactly what Tricky says about trail running. It's like it, it, it makes it so much more enjoyable because it's not just about pace and distance. Yeah, it's like seeing stuff, you know, yeah. getting outside go somewhere different go exploring we get that other element that other benefit of of exercise and actually you know if we're thinking about the bps and trying to link it into this conversation it's it's that psychological element isn't it you know you feel very different um when you're outdoors versus like running on a treadmill um yeah. which reminds me well, of a really cool study i saw about um rate of perceived exertion and they asked people to frown whilst they were working out versus yeah, smile whilst they were yeah, working yeah. out and the people who were smiling or watch, I think they maybe showed them a comedy show as well, rated their exercise as easier. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's brilliant. Like, yeah. It's all about perception of fatigue. Like, yeah. Um, going back to the trail running, also, I found that it also feels like it wears down on your body a lot less than running on roads. Like, I don't know if there's any yeah. like science behind it, but I, I suppose it's like the variability in like the surface and, like how your foot's planting and your stride characteristics and all that kind of stuff like it's less exactly the same repetitiveness on the same structures yeah, so like repetitive strain injuries are much less likely <laughs> for people to run on trail versus running on roads yeah so i might try and start doing 
Yeah, I might try and do like my long runs on on trail. Yeah, and I also think, you know, there's a lot of people listening to this. Well, maybe there isn't, but I'm assuming there's a lot of people that would listen to our our weight loss kind of discussion and want to apply that to their life. You know, even though you've you've lost a bit of weight, you're still not a light runner. So actually right. varying it and going on the trails is, you know, it's really important just to reduce the risk of injury as well. Yeah, yeah. That is one of the main risk factors for a bone stress is your body weight. Um yeah, when when I got back into running, I was just under 100 kilograms. So yeah, definitely, definitely not. I don't think I'll ever be a light runner. Uh, I don't think I'll ever be light, let alone <laughs> light runner. <laughs> but if you do want to get good at running, that's one of the best ways to get better is to just lose weight. <laughs> yeah, bloody hell. We've having a right can of worms there, haven't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I that, that's all of my notes for the... Uh, biopsychosocial model unless unless you've got anything else to add any final words of wisdom don't think so i've nothing profound to add at this moment no you've added enough profoundness already to this episode i think (laughs) um there we have it so we'll wrap it up there um tune in next week where we are discussing just hold that thought yeah i I always forget that's why i ask you disgusting oh this is going to be a good one. This is so relevant to you. Uh, we're going to be talking about concurrent training. Okay, nice. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, so, yeah, t- so tune in next cut. week. Yeah, if you're looking to get fitter and stronger, definitely don't miss that one. Yeah, 100%. Thanks all for listening and catch you next week.